Chapter 7 of The Beckoning Fair One This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions Chapter 7 Without knowing how he came to be there, Oleron found himself striding over the loose board he had temporarily placed on the step broken by Miss Bengal. He was hatless and descending the stairs. Not until later did there return to him a hazy memory that he had left the candle burning on the table, had opened the door no wider than was necessary to allow the passage of his body, and had sidled out, closing the door softly behind him. At the foot of the stairs another shock awaited him. Something dashed with a flurry up from the disused cellars and disappeared out of the door. It was only a cat, but Oleron gave a childish sob. He passed out of the gate and stood for a moment under the toilette boards, plucking foolishly at his lip and looking up at the glimmer of light behind one of his red blinds. Then, still looking over his shoulder, he moved stumblingly up the square. There was a small public house round the corner. Oleron had never entered it, but he entered it now, and put down a shilling that missed the counter by inches. Brandy, he said, and then stooped to look for the shilling. He had the little sawdusted bar to himself. What company there was, carters and labourers and the small tradesmen of the neighbourhood, was gathered in the farther compartment, beyond the space where the white-haired landlady moved among her taps and bottles. Oleron sat down on a hardwood settee with a perforated seat, drank half his brandy, and then, thinking you might as well drink it as spill it, finished it. Then he fell to wondering which of the men whose voices he heard across the public house would undertake the removal of his effects on the morrow. In the meantime, he ordered more brandy, for he did not intend to go back to that room where he had left the candle burning. Oh, no! He couldn't have faced even the entry and the staircase with the broken step. Certainly not that piss-white, fascinating room. He would go back for the present to his old arrangement of workroom and separate sleeping quarters. He would go to his old landlady at once, presently, when he had finished his brandy, and see if she could put him up for the night. His glass was empty now. He rose, had it refilled, and sat down again. And if anybody asked his reason for removing again? Oh, he had reason enough, reason enough. Nails that put themselves back into wood again and gashed people's hands, steps that broke when you trod on them, and women who came into a man's place and brushed their hair in the dark were reasons enough. He was querulous and injured about it all. He had taken the place for himself, not for invisible women to brush their hair in. That lawyer fellow in Lincoln's Inn should be told so, too, before many hours were out. It was outrageous, letting people in for agreements like that. A cut-glass partition divided the compartment where Oleron sat from the space where the white-haired landlady moved, but it stopped seven or eight inches above the level of the counter. There was no partition at the farther bar. Presently Oleron, raising his eyes, saw that faces were watching him through the aperture. The faces disappeared when he looked at them. He moved to a corner where he could not be seen from the other bar, 
but this brought him into line with the white-haired landlady. She knew him by sight, had doubtless seen him passing and repassing, and presently she made a remark on the weather. Oleron did not know what he replied, but it sufficed to call forth the further remark that the winter had been a bad one for influenza, but that the spring weather seemed to be coming at last. Even this slight contact with the commonplace studied Oleron a little, an idle, nascent wonder whether the landlady brushed her hair every night, and if so, whether it gave out those little electric cracklings, was shut down with a snap, and Oleron was better. With his next glass of brandy, he was all for going back to his flat. Not go back? Indeed, he would go back. They should very soon see whether he was to be turned out of his place like that. He began to wonder why he was doing the rather unusual thing he was doing at that moment. Unusual for him. Sitting hatless, drinking brandy, in a public house. Suppose he were to tell the white-haired landlady all about it to tell her that a caller had scratched her hand on a nail, and later had the bad luck to put her foot through a rotten stair, and that he himself, in an old house full of squeaks and creaks and whispers, had heard a minute noise and had bolted from it in fright. What would she think of him? That he was mad, of course. The real truth of the matter was that he hadn't been doing enough work to occupy him. He had been dreaming his days away filling his head with a lot of moonshine about a new Romilly, as if the old one was not good enough. And now he was surprised that the devil should enter an empty head. Yes, he would go back. He would take a walk in the air first, he hadn't walked enough lately, and then he would take himself in hand, settle the hash of that sixteenth chapter of Romilly. Fancy, he had actually been fool enough to think of destroying fifteen chapters. And thenceforward, he would remember that he had obligations to his fellow men and work to do in the world. There was the matter in a nutshell. He finished his brandy and went out. He had walked for some time before any other bearing of the matter than that on himself occurred to him. At first, the fresh air had increased the heady effect of the brandy he had drunk. But afterwards, his mind grew clearer than it had been since morning. And the clearer it grew the less final did his boastful self-assurances become, and the firmer his conviction that, when all explanations had been made, there remained something that could not be explained. His hysteria of an hour before had passed. He grew steadily calmer, but the disquieting conviction remained. A deep fear took possession of him. It was a fear for Elsie, for something in his place was inimical to her safety. Of themselves, her two accidents might not have persuaded him of this, but she herself had said it. I'm not wanted here. And she had declared that there was something wrong with the place. She had seen it before he had. Well and good. One thing stood out clearly, namely that if this was so, she must be kept away for quite another reason than that which had so confounded and humiliated Oleron. Luckily, she had expressed her intention of staying away. She must be held to that intention. He must see to it. And he must see to it all the more that he now saw his first impulse, never to set foot in the place again, was absurd. People did not do that kind of thing. 
With Elsie made secure, he could not with any respect to himself suffer himself to be turned out by a shadow, not even by a danger merely because it was a danger. He had to live somewhere, and he would live there. He must return. He mastered the faint chill of fear that came with the decision, and turned in his walk abruptly. Should fear grow in him again, he would, perhaps, take one more glass of brandy. But by the time he reached the short street that led to the square, he was too late for more brandy. The little public house was still lighted, but closed, and one or two men were standing talking on the curb. Oleron noticed that a sudden silence fell on them as he passed, and he noticed further that the long-nosed Barrett, whom he passed a little lower down, did not return his good night. He turned in at the broken gate, hesitated merely an instant in the alley, and then mounted his stairs again. Only an inch of candle remained in the Sheffield stick, and Oleron did not light another one. Deliberately he forced himself to take it up and to make the tour of his five rooms before retiring. It was as he returned from the kitchen across his little hall that he noticed that a letter lay on the floor. He carried it into his sitting-room and glanced at the envelope before opening it. It was unstamped and had been put into the door by hand. Its handwriting was clumsy, and it ran from beginning to end without comma or period. Oleron read the first line, turned to the signature, and then finished the letter. It was from the man Barrett, and it informed Oleron that he, Barrett, would be obliged if Mr. Oleron would make other arrangements for the preparing of his breakfasts and the cleaning out of his place. The sting lay in the tale, that is to say, the postscript. This consisted of a text of scripture. It embodied an allusion that could only be to Elsie Bengal. A seldom-seen frown had cut deeply into Oleron's brow. So that was it. Very well, they would see about that on the morrow. For the rest, this seemed merely another reason why Elsie should keep away. Then his suppressed rage broke out. The foul-minded lot! The devil himself could not have given a leer at anything that had ever passed between Paul Oleron and Elsie Bengough. Yet this nosing rascal must be prying and talking. Oleron crumpled the paper up, held it in the candle-flame, and then ground the ashes under his heel. One useful purpose, however, the letter had served. It had created in Oleron a wrathful blaze that effectually banished the pale shadows. Nevertheless, one other puzzling circumstance was to close the day. As he undressed, he chanced to glance at his bed. The coverlets bore an impress, as if somebody had lain on them. Oleron could not remember that he himself had lain down during the day. Offhand, he would have said that certainly he had not. But after all, he could not be positive. His indignation for Elsie, acting possibly with the residue of the brandy in him, excluded all other considerations, and he put out his candle, lay down, and passed immediately into a deep and dreamless sleep, which in the absence of Mrs. Barrett's morning call lasted almost once round the clock. End of chapter 7